0: Well, I mentioned earlier our sermon passages from John chapter 13, verses 21 through 28. Turn there if you haven't already. We are making our way through the gospel of John uh, in a series here and uh, continuing here in the second half of John. And this is a passage actually that I touched on Maundy Thursday. So um, it spoke to it just sort of in a, in a brief message for those who were who were there. I'll take a little bit different uh, angle on it, so to speak, this morning. But I've titled this message, Loving People Who Wronged You. Loving People Who Wronged You. We're in John 13, verses 21 through 28. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we just give reverence to His uh, authority, and attentiveness to his voice in the scriptures. Hear the word of the Lord. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the fast, for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and, the God, and God is glorified in him. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you now, as always, for your word. We open it with the belief that it is true and living and active and powerful. And we have the expectation that by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will make it live to us today and that you would cause it to be active and powerful toward us, not only corporately, but even individually. Lord, knowing every heart represented in this room and what the needs of our heart are, we ask that you would speak in personal ways to us as you desire to do so. And so, Lord, would you speak, O oh Lord, your word, by your spirit, through your servant, to your people for your glory and for our good. And God, I ask you now, as always, to move me out of the way and just use my voice as your instrument. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. And uh, as a side note, um, I'll just ask one of the deacons to check the thermostat back here. I'm warm. If you're not, that's okay. Uh, I, I mean, you know, it's a, it doesn't matter to me. I'll sweat. But I, I, uh, I've been around long enough to know I don't want to assemble a crowd of people in a room and then turn the temperature up. So if you'll uh, check that, turn it down, get some air circulating, we'll have a happier crowd. You know that this is true, I think, that it's people, people who make life rich and joyful and maybe you've not stopped and thought about that much but probably if you did think about it uh, it is mostly the people in our life who make life rich and joyful and it's the people in our life that make life difficult and painful some of the greatest pain comes from being personally wronged by people we love or trust and maybe even my saying so brings memories immediately to mind. Because maybe for some of you, they never live very far below the surface of those kinds of experiences. Well, Jesus knew that better than any of us. And we get a glimpse of it here in this passage in kind of subtle ways that I want to touch on. But we, we read last week, for those who were here, um, Jesus knew his time had come to die. Depart out of this world. uh, world. And so he rose up from dinner, prepared a towel and basin, and he washed his disciples' feet. Then he sat back down at the table. That happened in the context of a meal. He sat back down and he told them that he's given them an example to follow. And then while they're still sitting there at the table from where we were last week, the rest of this conversation took place. And this second half of John 13 is really probably best known for what Jesus says in verse 34. And again, this is the part that I spoke to on our Monday Thursday service. But he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. What does that really look like to love the way Jesus loved? Because here's a question I'm going to attach to this whole service about this and and maybe some other verses. What if he really meant it? What if he really meant what he said? To love the way Jesus loved. And what does that even mean? look like? Well, we know, I think we know, it's selfless and sacrificial. Uh, I've said before that love gives. Love is a, the giving of oneself for the good of the other. And you read all throughout the New Testament, that's the, the sort of the picture you get, the description you get of love. God so loved that he gave his only son. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're to model our Uh, love after his or imitate his love by giving of ourselves for the good of another so it's selfless and it's sacrificial looks out for the interests of the other it's humble and we really meditated on that last week as he washed his disciples feet and said it's an example for us to follow but but what I really wanted to Uh, look at this morning again sort of comes from a different angle having brushed this passage very recently anyway but that commandment to love one another and to love as he loved is sandwiched between two disclosures of betrayal and denial I mean look look if you if you have a bible open just look at your bible and see that the headings uh, perhaps even in the version that you're looking at Have it that way. One of you will betray me. Peter, you will deny me. And in between is love the way that I love. Two of his 12 disciples would turn on him. And there's there's really a fascinating to me, intriguing drama in all of this, the way this story unfolds, because you've got... They're at this table in an intimate setting as they're reclined at table, as it says, you know, sort of lying down on their side with a table very low to the ground uh, in a very intimate setting with people who are close with one another. Two of the 12 would turn on him, one in a very premeditated way. The other who just caved under pressure. And Peter that night couldn't believe that hours later uh, he would deny them. But one in a very premeditated way, another who just caved under pressure. One of them is, I think, probably indisputably, the worst villain in Christian history. Is there anybody else who who would have rights to that title other than Judas? The other is one of the greatest heroes in Christian history. I mean, it's just—it's really an incredible drama there. That that's what's unfolding here at the table. The people at sort of both ends of the spectrum, if you will, are going to turn on Jesus under different sort of circumstances. And even so, there's not a ripple of contempt or bitterness from Jesus. Even as he commanded his disciples to love one another, he was showing love to two people who were going to wrong him terribly and i i think every time i've spoken to these passages recently i've said how how troubling that is to me because that is hard to follow can you agree with that to say that, that to love the way jesus loved knowing he washed Judas's feet, and he washed Peter's feet, by the way. And that we're to love accordingly, that is terribly challenging. But he models that even in the midst of that. And so I wanted to look this morning fairly quickly here at just what Jesus shows us, or demonstrates here, uh, in two keys to loving people who wronged you. And the first is to treat them with dignity. To treat them with dignity. As I said, there are really some some subtle details here in this account, this description of how Judas' betrayal is revealed in verses 21 through 30. But if you look there, it says, Jesus, Jesus tells them one of them will betray him. And they're sort of all wondering, who is it? And Peter signals... To John, it says the disciple who Jesus loved, John referring to himself there, he kind of signals to John somehow, motions to him, to ask Jesus who that was. And so John does, and Jesus says it's the one he'll give a morsel of bread uh, to in just a moment. And then he does that, of course. Well, I don't know if you're, you're probably familiar with this passage, and I don't know if you've connected these dots before, but it seems quite clear no one else at the table knows that that little communication has gone on between Jesus and John. It wasn't like, in other words, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And John says, who is it, Lord? And he says, it's the one to whom I will give the morsel. And hands it to him with everybody listening there. It's, it's somehow, uh, perhaps the you know, conversation has resumed at the table. You can maybe imagine 13 people seated around a table, how that happens, right? That the conversation happens between people sitting beside each other or across from the table or whatever the case may be. But it says um, that, uh, I'll look in, let me see if I can find the verse. I don't have it written down, but um, in verse 28, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. When he hands the morsel to Judas and says, what you must do, do quickly. And nobody knew what he was, what he was even referring to. Um, now that's not, you know, maybe by itself, the most significant thing here in this passage. But I can imagine a lot of other people besides Jesus in that situation, who would very much be eager to make it known, Judas, Judas is a traitor. See, right there at that moment, where there's this really private exchange between Jesus and John. So John knows who the traitor is. Uh, Judas knows who the traitor is. He hands in the morsel, says, what you do, do quickly. And he leaves the room and the others none the wiser. Now again, I, that is not surprising knowing the character of Jesus. It would be surprising knowing the character of Stacy. And if I were the one sitting at the table it might not be so subtle, right? I mean we can imagine a scenario where some, you know, somebody sitting there goes, hey boys we got a traitor among us. Judas has sold us out. Matter of fact, I'm going to step out and get some fresh air. Why don't y'all teach Judas what happens to traitors here? You know, in other words, there's a lot of times when, when we're wronged, even when we can't do anything about it, we want everybody else to know we've been wronged. And we want them to know who the perpetrator was. I just find it striking and remarkable how Jesus... Even in this scenario, he's washed Judas's feet and, and really, even in that interaction, uh, treats him with dignity. Again, it's really not particularly remarkable knowing the character of Jesus, but knowing the nature of humanity. It really is. And knowing that Jesus said, love the way I loved, that's instructive to us and noteworthy. You may remember from Matthew chapter 5 and verses 43 through 46 as part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain to the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Like We don't don't get extra credit for loving the people who love us. That's sort of a paraphrase or a takeaway from that. There's no special credit to us for loving people who love us. There's no special credit for loving when it's easy to love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And not in the way that says, well, I'll pray for you. You know, you've you've maybe used that kind of talk before. Probably not you, the person next to you. Uh, You know, who wants to sound a little bit Christian about it. But really, you're feeling spiteful. And it's, again, that's pretty human, isn't it? But it's not excusable for the Christian. We're called to love our enemies. And that's why I said, "Well, this is, this is the question. What if he really meant that? There are, there are some things Jesus said like this, that we treat them as if they were hyperbole. That he's exaggerating to make a point. And I would submit to you, he's not exaggerating. I would submit to you, if you read uh, writings from the early church in the first couple of hundred years of the church, you'll come away very much with the sense that they took that literally. That they subjected themselves to all kinds of mistreatment because they believed that's part of what it meant to follow Jesus. What if he really meant... Love your enemies. And one of the ways that we would be challenged to do that is to treat them with dignity. This is one of many messages as I tell people. I'm reading the the passage the week before and I'm going, Lord, I don't want to preach this this week. I need more time uh, to sort of adjust my own heart. I I need more time for my own heart to catch up. Treat people with dignity. Even Our enemies. The second would be release them from their wrongs. Release them from their wrongs. Uh, The last verses of this chapter foretell Peter's denial as we saw in in verses uh, 37 and 38 there. And it said, you know, Peter said, I will lay down my life for you. And again, we might point out as a footnote, two of the most regrettable words in the New Testament are Peter said. Like you know, Peter just just shouldn't say sometimes. Peter and me, I could probably write a book called Peter and Me. You know, Peter Peter needed his kindergarten teacher there, saying, "Make a bubble, Peter." <laughs> you know, just <laughs> cover one on your one on your hips, one on your lips. Is that how it goes? You yeah. uh, know. But he says, I'll lay down my life. Jesus says, will you? You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. But right before that, um, he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But afterward, or later, it may say in your translations, you will follow me. Now, again, this is is subtle and sort of a glancing reference or passing reference uh, in the scripture, the way... Uh, the way that it reads, but Jesus looked beyond the denial of Peter, and this is essentially what Jesus has done: is forgiven Peter or, or or released him from the wrong that hasn't even happened yet. He's getting ready to say, "You will deny me," but he's he's already declared afterward, "You will follow me." That's precious. That is precious. And they would have this post-resurrection encounter too where Jesus makes it very real and personal later um, that will drive home to Peter that he has been forgiven. And Peter would receive that forgiveness. That, by the way, the difference maker in the life and the, 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 the outcome of Peter versus Judas who would kill himself but receiving that forgiveness. So so they'll have that encounter, but here Jesus speaks with certainty that afterward you will follow. He's already released him from the wrong. I use that phrase really as just another way of describing forgiveness. I was going through a little discipleship guide, but someone recently, and the author of that uh, book described forgiveness that way. The forgiveness is releasing others from wrongs suffered. That has been a sermon by itself. It's really a worthy sermon or sermon series and a meditation by itself. But the forgiveness um, involves releasing people. when, When people wrong us, it's really wrong. Like they've really done something wrong to us much of the time. And our our tendency is to try to hold them in jail, as it were, for a period of time. Even like withholding forgiveness for a period of time, because you know you've got to feel sorry and suffer for a, 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 a mandatory minimum of days, you know. Three days from now, I forgive you, but I, you just need to feel how upset I am with you. Now, again, that may sound or look a little bit different, but I think everybody here knows what I'm talking about. That this is this is sometimes what, what unforgiveness looks like, even if we've said, I forgive you. What unforgiveness actually looks like is continuing to hold that person captive to the wrong that they've, Uh, inflicted upon us and I'll tell you the cruel irony is we're the ones imprisoned by it we're the ones actually chained to the affliction not the other person many times a person can forgive themselves they could say they're sorry and be really uh, released from that and our uh, unforgiveness actually keeps us tethered to the wrong that we've suffered Releasing others from the wrong suffer really isn't primarily even for their benefit. Um, it's for ours, and I would say at the same time, it is one of the uh, age-long schemes of the devil to keep people in, in bondage, even generation after generation, to hold on to offenses and wounds thinking. That it's the other person who somehow is hurt by that or pays the due penalty of their sin, as it were, against us. And we're the ones actually hurt by that, and other people passing along, in some cases, in, in, in families from, from parent to child to child to child to child. You know, generations of that, that kind of thing can just continue to be borne out. Because of old offenses, we try to hold them imprisoned, as it were. And there's there's all kinds of ways that that happens in the lives of people. And uh, again, there are are people, this is, it's, it's maybe most true and most painful in families. Perhaps because those are the people we know the best, that we love the most intimately. And so it hurts the most when those wrongs are done to us. And perhaps because sometimes you can't, you can't escape them, as it were, or distance yourselves from them. You, have to, you live in the midst of it all the time. That can be uh, abusive or controlling relationships with a parent or with a spouse. Um, you know, all, all, kinds of, all kinds of manifestations of that. But somehow they're most painful in a family scenario. But there are other people uh, that can... And maybe we would say those family wrongs, those family wounds are the ones that are that cut the deepest and are, are most sustained over a period of time. There are others that are really acute, you know, punctuated, that people do something deeply hurtful and wrong toward us. And maybe the effects of that are lasting in some ways. But... You know, we can, we can sort of distance ourselves from some people and we regard them in our heart as enemies. And one of the gifts that Jesus has given to the world, but particularly to his church, you believe what he said and follow him and his example. One of the great gifts he has given is to love by forgiving. It's is, is to tell us Command us to forgive, because we're the ones, uh, again, bound up by unforgiveness. We're the ones set free by forgiveness. And as I said, that, that, you know, there's so much that could be said on either one of those uh, those two subjects, and and a whole lot more could be said about this passage in particular. Um, I uh, keep am keeping it relatively shorter. For the sake of uh, our communion together. But I might conclude by saying. When we think about the enemies as it were. Who have wronged us. And the enemies we're charged to love. Have you remembered. That God says of you and me. That we were enemies of God. We, We tend not to think of ourselves that way. But in our sin, we were enemies of God. We were actually in cahoots with the prince of darkness, Ephesians 2 says. Ephesians 2, Romans 5, you could read both of those and get explicit references to that. My point is, uh, God demonstrated his love to us. And that while we were sinners, while we were enemies of Christ... Christ died for us. The only reason we could claim to be Christian is because He loved us when we were enemies, and says to us, "Love as I have loved. Love one another as I have loved, but even to one anothers who have wronged you and wounded you deeply." Well, I trust and pray that there is uh, something in there um, for you to be able to walk away with and for the Holy Spirit to continue to minister to your own heart. As I said, there's so much more that could be said, but just a a short reflection uh, for us on this passage this morning as we go to the Lord's table in just a moment. Well, let's pray before we do that. God, we do thank you that you set your love upon us. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive. While we were children of wrath, you made us children and heirs raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly places, bestowed upon him a rich inheritance. We praise you for that. And Lord, we acknowledge the great challenge, the great challenge of loving the way Jesus loved, of really obeying that commandment. To God, I pray that you would Work powerfully in our hearts, Lord, that that Jesus would increase, that we would decrease. That, as Julie mentioned, as we sang in the one song, that Jesus did not despise the cross, rather, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Lord would you so work in our hearts that we might be people who make ourselves less and him more who humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and are willing even to despise the shame, the offense, the injustice the pain of wrongs done toward us and love the way Jesus loved and we could only do so by your power, we ask that you would um, impart it to us in the name of Jesus. Amen.